Welcome to the RSP Cast Scout Talk. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me is Russ Landy, head of U.S. Scouting for the Montreal Alouettes. Russ, always a pleasure to have you join us every couple of weeks to talk ball. This is going to be a fun episode. Well, no doubt, and especially this week. I mean, trade deadline, and it was probably the busiest trade deadline in years. I can't remember one like this. And when you combine the trades from the week before, it it made for a crazy sort of 10-day stretch. It sure did. And when you take that in itself, but then add in things like, um, you know, what happened in Indianapolis in the, um, on Monday and the week before, and then, and then also, you know, what's been going on with someone like Russell Wilson, who we heard, and let's just lead in with that. Cause I, this one has been, you know, I'm admittedly a Russ Wilson fan on the field. I really, you know, and then as someone who just watches the game the way I do, I, I really don't care about all the like gossip oriented TV stuff that, that you yeah. see, but it did kind of strike a nerve to me that, you know, I, and I wrote something about like Kyle Brandt's, you know, rant about Russell Wilson. That was what, what, which to me was interesting because the, the morning before the game, he was talking about how people were bearing Russell Wilson on, um, you know, unceremoniously too and too early. And he said, yeah, sure. You know, all this talk about what he's like off the field, whatever, he's a good guy and these types of things. And then by the game's end against Indianapolis, he was burying him along with everybody else and calling him inauthentic and saying he was a phony. And even though he was a nice guy, he was all these things. And, and he said not to talk. He said, the reason that I'm saying all this isn't, and question his leadership isn't because of what we saw on the field where he missed a, a wide open KJ Hamler in the end zone, not because of his play, but because get this Russell Wilson, um, basically, basically spurned him at the red carpet of an NFL event that was televised, um, that he literally said that like it was because you spurned me that this is why we should be upset with you and I'm calling you all these names because you know he was and and I so I you know I talked about this a lot but what I want to know from you is you know I remember when people were praising him heading into the league for his leadership and how and his demeanor and you know, now we're hearing all these things. And to me, it's kind of like high school lunch table talk, you know, where it's like maybe the popular crowd looks at somebody like this and they're just kind of picking at him. And maybe there's reason. Maybe he is all these things. But I also know he's had more fourth quarter comebacks than any quarterback in you know, in the league in this era. He got hit more times than Andrew Luck and Cam Newton um, while in Seattle. And his quarterback rating in the fourth quarter and in the second half of games and the points scored for Seattle in the second half all were like tops in the NFL over the period that he was their starter. So while, yes, the Legion of Boom deserves a lot of credit for what they did during their peak era, um, he must be doing something right. And I, all I need to know is, I, I watched his, I watched his corny self belief act mic'd up in the Green Bay game where he absolutely looked like horse shit and and for the worst in his career I've ever seen for like three and a half, four quarters, and then comes down from multiple touchdowns against Green Bay to 
to bring them back so that they can go to another Super Bowl. I, you know, I, I look at that and that's more important to me. If you, am I wrong to say that if you're a pro and you see that, that's all the motivation you need. If, 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 if Russ needs to do like the self-help book, corny things that people see corny right now so that he feels good about himself and performs well. If I'm a grown man, I just go, well, that's his deal. He may sound like somebody out of a business leadership book. I don't care. I got my own job to do. And all I know is he usually is killing it on the field. And if he isn't, he's, you know, he's actively working on it until we do. I mean, where are you at with this? Well, first I'll say, I think to not realize what a great leader this guy is would be to underestimate. When you think about it, this guy was at NC State, transfers to Wisconsin, is there less than a month. They vote on captains, and he's the highest vote getter. Yeah. Um, He has a natural charisma. Um, He has the ability to get guys to buy in and lead um, and sort of buy in and believe what he's doing. And, And I think part of what he does that's so unique is his ability rubs off on guys that are, have a little bit of leadership quality to where some of those guys will then show a little leadership too. He's got a unique ability to do that. I think what people, and, I, and, I, and there is some truth to it, is also Russell is a, not just a smart guy. He's a really smart guy who has interest off the football field. And I think sometimes that makes him a little different than – your traditional quarterback who's focused 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like Peyton Manning, not to knock Peyton or Russell, they're just different. But Peyton lived, died, everything was football. And I think for Russell, it's, hey, I'm doing my job. I'm doing everything in my power to humanly be the best I can. But I also have other things that interest me. And I think to some, that rubs them the wrong way. And I think his also being so intelligent and such a sort of cultured person at times I think leads to him probably being a guy that maybe doesn't relate as well to some of the players. And maybe at this stage of his career, it's a little harder for him to sell some of his motivation because some of these guys will look at him looking at him and saying, Hey, you have all these interests. You're worth hundreds of millions. What are you trying to motivate me with? So I can, I can see that, that yeah. a little bit of critique, but at the same time, you don't do what he's done. And I really believe this in my heart. There are very few quarterbacks that achieve the, the levels of success. Now, I'm not talking just Super Bowl victories. I'm talking actual performance on the field on a consistent basis that don't have natural leadership skills. And so I don't think that's the issue. I think part of it is I think the skills have eroded a little bit physically. And I think he's having a hard time playing up to his former level. And I think as with all of us, when we're not able to do something we always did at a very high level, at that same level anymore, we have a hard time with it. It's not easy to accept. And I think that may lead to him maybe not being as good at getting everybody to buy in because he's fighting something himself, which is, how do I get there? How do I get back to where I was five years ago when I was a dominant elite player? Now I'm a, a, a good, solid guy with flashes of greatness. How do I get back? Yeah. So I think he's sort of stuck in a spot. Yeah. And I think that's a, and, and I think that's absolutely fair. You know, when we look at it from that perspective, you know, I charted some of his games and what was fascinating is those first two games before the Colts game, he had 18 drops 
um, seven red zone, end zone drops, seven end zone drops, and then some of the, and then he had, you know, for the positives, I mean, he had drawn multiple defensive pass interference penalties with pinpoint passes that were just interfered with, you know? So there were, you know, even if there's a decline in how much he can move, how much he can create on the move um, compared to maybe what he did in the past, he's, you know, the first two games, he put them in position. So there's, there's that there, you know, there's that. And I, and I do understand like relating. And I also understand, I would also think that if you marry a, a basically a international celebrity, that there's probably things that people don't understand that he might have to be um, more cognizant of, which is maybe if his wife's joining him for an event and I don't know, I'm just guessing, but I would have to think of his wife's joining him for an event that maybe is an NFL related event, but she's already had to deal with the media for like, and, and it's just like, can we agree that we're just not going to do any interviews? Can I just have a night off? And I think that we're not allowed that, that people who are celebrities are not allowed to have a night off or it's, and if they do, then the media punishes them for that. And I think that there is a tendency in the, the media to punish players for not, for, for basically doing what, what happened, you know, how Kyle Brandt felt about it is, is, is there's a, and, and, and I also think, I mean, this, this is probably off the rails a bit, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it anyway, Kyle Brandt was an actor. So I'd have to think that in a lot of these media folks who are doing these things were, were aspiring actors or did some, did some acting. And, you know, I think he was on a soap opera. I went and looked him up on Wikipedia. He did a, he did a soap opera. I think it was days of our lives or something like that. I don't know which one he did, but I would have to think that, you know, some people's aspirations and that they end up in, in football media or sports media their original aspirations were to be celebrities, you know? So I wonder if there's a little bit of that underlying with it. And, uh, you know, I'll hint that out there only because I think the behavior that he exhibited, I mean, he may be a really nice guy, but the Xavier, the, the behavior he exhibited seemed a little petty and it seemed, you know, and, and I just look at that and I think maybe people look at that and see him saying, can I, can I have a night off from, from talking to people he, and there's part of it is like, it, is he's always doing that? Is he always excluding people? That's one thing. If he's like, can I have one? And then a million people go after him about that one time. That's, that's a different story. I can't answer that. And I, and I would also add not so much on that side, but you mentioned the celebrity part. I mean, just look at how the coverage changed 10 years ago with Brady when he started dating Giselle, it became a different thing. You didn't hear about Brady's in the office 24 hours a day and all this. You heard about, oh, he's jet-setting ears. Jet-. And people took shots. Is he taking it seriously and stuff like that? And I was like, hey, he's probably doing the same amount, just like Russell is, of work. We may just not see it. Yeah. Because instead of being at the facility till 2 in the morning, he's going, doing a social thing. And at home, because then like most quarterbacks that are earning ungodly money they have the ability at home in terms of technology to do everything they can at the facility yeah 
So to to think that that Russell Wilson or, or Brady that the idea of them doing the work and being the leader has dramatically changed, I think is incorrect. Yeah. I think their lives and what goes around them has changed to make the perception different. Yeah. But and, I, I and and the other thing I will add, and the, people may not want to hear it, is part of what made Russell Wilson so unique is obviously he's five ten and change, and part of what made him so successful is they were able to build an offense that accentuated what he did great and hide some of the things that are always going to be issues for shorter quarterbacks. Well, now as he's getting older and the mobility is not what it once was, there are times he has to do things that maybe don't suit exactly what he wants to do as or suit his skill set as well because he can't do as much on the move as he used to. Yeah, and hey, those are fair points. So, I mean, it's fascinating. But I, I think, too, it, you know, with this, it does get to a deeper question. What is, you know, what are some of the stereotypes of quarterbacking that are true in terms of what's expected of them to that makes a good leader at the position? And then where is the stereotype maybe not always true, you, you know, when, when it comes to that? Well, uh, uh, one big stereotype I think that completely misses the point is you hear people comment when you hear a quarterback interviewed and some quarterbacks depending on where they're from and how they were raised they have a different vocabulary a different way of speaking um they may speak slower they may speak jumbled they may speak faster whatever it may be and people judge a quarterback's intelligence a lot of the time on those interviews and it's a huge mistake because when you hear brett Favre when he first came out he sounded like a country bumpkin I mean, he sounded like this guy who's just off the farm, probably had never opened a book in his life. But in, in actuality, he learned football. Now, it may not have been to today's extent because the game has changed so much, but he understood football. And I think that's one of the misperceptions. One of the big things that scouts and, and coaches and GMs try to do is you try to find out, I don't care what he sounds like when he's being interviewed at the media. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't want a guy who can't put a sentence together. Obviously, that doesn't look good. But you have to find out what is he like from the coaches. And you really want to find out what is it, what do his teammates think, the guys that are in the huddle with him. Can he command the huddle? That's one of the things you want to find out. Because guys that are leaders, even if they're a little soft-spoken and things like that, when they get in the huddle, they just have that ability to command that huddle. Because when it's nut crunch time in a game and the crowd's going berserk, you're on the road and it's a big drive, you need someone to calm everybody down, take control of the huddle. And that's where you have to do your research. That's where you have to find out what is this guy like in the most important situations. Um, I can give you sort of two examples of sort of, I won't give the names, but there's one quarterback in particular. When he was coming out of school, I did not particularly like this guy's film. And I had heard he was going to be a top 10 or top 15 pick. So I called a veteran scout I knew. And he said, Ross, he said, I went and graded this kid. On film, he said, I gave him a top 10 grade. I think he's a superstar. He said, I thought his film, the team thought his grade was so high. They said, well, go see him live. We want you to go to three games. He went to three games. And after the three games, he changed his report and said, I'm not sure this guy can be a professional quarterback. Because when the, the when they come off the field, he sits all by himself away from the team. And he said, you never once saw him interact with teammates or coaches he would just go sit by himself. And his quote to me, my, my, this former mentor of mine will say, he said, I'm not a psychiatrist, 
But he said, I've been doing this 30 years and I've never seen a successful quarterback who doesn't at least interact with his teammates on the sideline. And this player did end up playing a long time in the NFL, but always struggled to be that natural leader of a team. And that was one of the things that held them back. So I think that's one of the things you really try to do your homework. You don't worry about what the public sees. You got to find out what the person's like. How do they handle when things go sideways? What do the coaches tell you? Hey, when he throws a pick and he comes to the sideline, is he able to forget about it and move on? Or does he dwell on it for the next two or three series? Um, the other thing you want to find out, and this is something when you interview these players, a lot of teams will put up um, a video of, hey, we went and got clips of every mistake you made this year on film. Um, and you'll put it up, and you'll want them to go through each play. And one of the things you want to hear from the quarterback, and almost all the good ones do it, is you want every mistake, even if it wasn't their fault, you want them to find a way to blame themselves. And I remember sitting in on a few of these, and I remember one in particular, the receiver had run the wrong route, clearly. And instead of saying the receiver ran the wrong route, the quarterback said, you know, I really screwed up. I didn't do a good enough job communicating that we had changed the play, and he had to run this route. So when you hear that, you think, okay, this guy gets it, because it's not that he may, he knows the receiver screwed up, but he also knows if you come out and say that, especially to the media, in front of other teammates, you're embarrassing them. And that doesn't work in the locker room. And most of the successful quarterbacks that either I've been around the interviews or I've heard other people be around the interviews, the quarterback takes the blame. Whereas there are one or two that I've heard, they did the same exercise and the quarterback would point out, oh yeah, the lineman messed up or this and this. And hey, we all can watch the film with the quarterback. We know who made the mistake. But to point out and start calling out your teammates like that, that's a red flag. And I know teams get very nervous about guys that won't take the blame themselves. Yeah. And I think that there's a, I think there, it, it, it kind of comes down to the idea of if you take as a quarterback, if you take responsibility, it's also an underlying theme that you're saying, look, I can, I know that as a leader, I can impact the game. I can I can do more to impact the game and by by how I communicate with my teammates, how I do these things. So there's a I, I almost think that there's an underlying deal that that people are looking for them to say, listen, I can I can I can impact multiple facets of the game and my job is to do that. So that's why I'm taking responsibility for it as well. I mean, there's a, you know, I think the teammate thing is obviously the most important one. I mean, like what you're saying makes total sense, but there is that underlying idea of like, yes, I can affect the outcome of a game just with how I handle things. And, and I need to be aware that as a leader, I can do that. If I'm still believing when we're down 28, three, um, in Carolina, for instance, with Russ again, you know, yep. and say, and I'm just going to keep coming and make Cam Newton nervous because w next thing you know, we're three, you know, three, four points away on the road after being down, you know, 24 and we're, we have a chance to win this, your team, that, that momentum is real. And then I think, Oh, no doubt. Yeah. And, and then what you, and then we've talked about this before the whole, one of the one of the things that can be a little stereotypical is you have to be an extrovert because if we look at um, you know we look at um, um, Joe Montana as an example 
And, you know, Montana is a, a great example of someone who you could tell was at best an introvert doing extrovert at times. Um, but talk about commanding a huddle and talk about knowing his team. I mean, the vaunted story that you always hear at the Super Bowl in 1988 or 89 in Miami where the Bengals had him on the ropes and then they drive down the field and, the you know, in the middle of the drive, he has the wherewithal and it may, it, you know, he may not even thought about it this way. You know, it would be interesting to ask him, but he, he, he might've, it just might've been a natural thing for him to distract his team by going, look, is that John Candy? And, and because when you interview around him and ask the, his teammates and, and they're all like, yeah, we're in like the biggest moment of our lives. And he's like, laughing and freaking out about John Candy and we're like one how did you even see that and two we're thinking if he's this calm and loose at this moment about this we're fine we're gonna win this you know um in the same way that maybe if John Elway you know at the you know back at the two yard line after the Browns kick him there and think and all the fans think including myself think they're going to a Super Bowl and John Elway gets into the huddle and goes, well, we got him right where we want him. I mean, those types of, it's, it's not what, it's just the, I, the belief, the idea, mm -hmm. how to express that idea. You don't have to say much, you know, but you just have to know, you have to have the right time and you have to kind of know the pulse of your team and what to do. I mean, the, the joke was, the joke was that Steve McNair would fall asleep and take like these naps in uniform in the locker room before the games. And I'm sure that teammates would laugh. They laughed about it, but, and he, but you would look at him and you'd have to think the guy's so relaxed that he's literally taking a nap before the game. Yep. We're going to be fine. Like, and the joke was, I think Jeff Fisher would say, we knew we were, if he didn't get his nap in, we were worried, but if he got yep. a nap in, we were, we, we, we were fine. And it sounds funny, but it also is a, a thing where you're like, if the head of our, if the operations manager of our team is, isn't even, doesn't even seem, he's just non pulsed about all of this, we're good. And and I think that that there is no set sort of like you were talking introvert expert. There's no set. Hey, this is the personality that they have to have. But what they have to have is that unnerving confidence. And like we talked about, I think at one point, almost a little of a narcissistic yes. sort of belief in themselves that hey, I'm going to do this. No matter how bad the game has gone to this point, I got this. Just get on my back. We're going to go do what we have to do. And certain guys have a unique ability, whether it's verbally or just with the way they carry themselves and their body language, to get that message across. Whereas other guys are screaming and yelling and vocal, but they're just not natural leaders. And I, and I will say that is the one thing that really is – I think for the, the with so much changing due to COVID, less people per team going to colleges, um, with the belief that you can do more via analytics and stuff, one of the risks is when you do go to the schools and you can go to practice, leaders show up because they take control of practice, they make sure things are done right, they make sure their guys are organized, and you get a chance to see guys lead and really hear what's going on because you can walk, you're literally eight, 10 feet away. You're not in the stands or in a press box. And you really can. I remember going to Iowa State in my, I think it was my second or third year at the Browns. 
and being out of practice for maybe 10 minutes. And Seneca Wallace just clearly was the man in charge. Like he controlled practice. Like he was telling guys, hey, let's make sure we're lined up right. Let's get this stretching done. I mean, he was in it. And you just got the sense that, hey, even if this kid never starts a game in the league, he's going to be in the league for a long time because he's got that it that you want in your locker room. Yeah, that's a great point. And I and I think that that's, that's one of the things that's important, especially, I mean, we see this. When we see the teams deteriorate, the locker room is one of the first things, to the first signs of that happening to the media that it's about to be over. And, and I think that a lot of that comes down to, you know, having that veteran leadership. We talked about, we've talked about here, Frank Gore screaming at his teammates in tears as a rookie because he's watching his teammates more concerned about going out and, and, and partying and doing whatever after a loss, rather than figuring out what they did, what they did wrong and, and having kind of the right mood about what's going on in this locker room um, and what just happened in the game. And, you know, when you have, you need players like that, whether they're in the leadership position or they're in another position and acting as a leader and you need multiple leaders who can reinforce the, the tone and tenor of it. So I could see where, you know, to circle back to this and then move on, move on a little bit is that I could see how someone like Richard Sherman, who, you know, I, I saw somebody show me something recently where he and Marshawn Lynch were talking saying, well, I don't, we never really even had Russell's number. We couldn't just call him about anything. You know, he's a nice guy. And now, now Richard tends to me, to me, like it's interesting that he's the one criticizing. And when I look at some of his antics in the media and stuff like that, now he seems to do great work off the field, and he's and he and, he, and obviously a, a very intelligent and accomplished um, um, player and, and individual off the field. But you could tell that there was something there. But but part of that too is at the end of the day, um, you know, I don't know many cornerbacks who went as far as maybe he did to try and get media attention during his career for some of the ways that he would, you know, he would talk in the media, you know, liked that because he was a walking soundbite, you know, oftentimes and created no stirred controversy. Um, so it's it's kind of like you have to look at the frame of reference when you see the criticism as well. So and and that he seems to be a big source of a lot of that. But at the same time, if you're not accessible, um, you know, I can see how people find that hard to understand too. So the relatability it goes back to that is that can you be relatable? Can you have good timing with what the message you deliver? Do you communicate with your teammates? Um, do you do it where, where it counts and when it counts? And obviously how you perform on the field. And I would also add to that, and this is whether it's Richard Sherman or Frank or whoever it is, to, to understand the position a quarterback is in and the pressure to be the leader, as opposed to if you're a corner or a running back or a linebacker or a left tackle, you can be a leader, you cannot be a leader. You don't have to be. But the pressure to be the leader, to be that guy, it's something I don't think anybody, including myself, yourself, we can grasp until we've stood in those shoes yeah. and had to do that. And I think that's one of the things that people don't understand is it's easy to critique from afar a quarterback and how he leads and say, oh, he's not leading as well as he should. Well, until you've stood there and had to do it, 
that's a very it's it's one of the hardest positions in all the sports because everything is on your shoulders. Yeah, it's so true, and I and I think that's a good reminder, and and it's one of the caveats I try to make because there are quarterbacks that you know I criticize on a and I and I end up during the season criticizing guys on a regular basis because of their play. Um, and even sometimes we'll joke here and there about things. But what I try to do and remind people to begin the year, to end the year, in the middle of the year, is a hard position. And the fact yep. that they're even there is a testament to their talent and that all of these guys have a, a high level of talent. Um, but at the end of the day, the job is to, to, to note what it is that they're not doing to the, the level of expectation that needs to go there. And that they, even though they may still be one of the 40 most talented players on earth who do this 40 or 50, maybe, you know, yep. um, that, you know, at the end of the day, they have a job and if they're not doing it, you know, it's going to get, pulled Oh yeah. Out, you know, but I think it's easier and fairer to point out the mistakes made physical mistakes made yes. in games, but the leadership thing is hard. And that's one of the reasons I'm a very strong believer that my quarterback coach and my coordinator, I'll be hard pressed. I'm not saying I would never do it, but I'd like them both to have played the position in college. Yeah. Because there's something about having to be that guy in the huddle in college in key games to when you're on the sideline, how do you keep calm, keep your quarterback calm when things may be going sideways, especially for a kid like, Trevor Lawrence or Zach Wilson, young guys where the, the future is so bright, but everything's racing 400 miles an hour and they feel the pressure on their shoulders. How great would it be to walk off the field after an interception and there's, whether it's a Boomer Esiason or Dan Fouts or Brian Sipes standing there with the headset saying, hey, trust me, I've done this. I was in Green Bay once and I threw this and that. Let's, let's focus on what's coming up. You're going to be good and here's why we're going to be good. We have this plan in place. And it's a, if people don't realize the how hard that job is, and, and I think it is fair to criticize because you have to. That's part of the, the, the analysis part. But criticizing the leadership is very hard if, because quarterbacks, it's, people have no grasp of how difficult the mental side of that position is. Absolutely. And I, and I love the point about having another person who's been on that stage in this performance medium giving perspective because a, a Brian Sipes a great example. People go, well, who? And so, well, he was a former league MVP. Um, and he's also thrown an interception that prevented them from going to a Super Bowl. So, and come back and still been able to lead a team. So yeah. how, how does that work? Um, and I think that though, you know, players who have experienced both the successes and failures on the biggest stage can offer some of the greatest insights and, keep it calm. And I think that that's, you know, we go back to, to Drew Brees talking about Marty Schottenheimer pulling him out of games repeatedly and saying, listen, you're still our guy, but you need to calm down. It's not the end of the world here. If we, and not saying it that way, he would say, you're still our guy. You got to calm down. We're going to put the veteran in, whether that was, you know, Doug Flutie at the time. I think it was Doug Flutie at the time Yeah, I and, think so. and, and say, you know, watch Doug. And if we get close, I'll put you back in to get a chance to win it. Um, but you need to, you need to sit and like stop get your mind swimming. You yep. know? And what that says isn't just the literal words. But it also says it's not the end of the world. Cause we're going to keep, we believe in you. It's yeah, the end of the exactly. World. We just don't want you to make it worse. 
You know, yep. figure out what you're doing and calm down a bit and you'll be all right. You know, we believe that. And I think that that's the type of thing you don't see enough of in today's um, development. Anyhow, we've talked about that. To Part death. of what made Marty great. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, speaking of guys who've, you know, moving to new teams, because I think of Breeze and Flutie in that, in that regard. And, and, you know, both of them got, I know one got traded. So what were some of the trades that you liked this week? And, and the trades that you probably, and also trades you need to see that how it plays out a little bit before you go, I'm sold on it. Well, I mean, you know, to me, there were a few that really jumped out. I loved Minnesota going and getting TJ Hawkinson. Um, and, I, and in truth, I was a little surprised. I mean, Detroit stunned. <laughs> giving up a, a, a good player. That's a team that doesn't have a lot of talent. And whether you think he's a superstar or a good tight end, whatever it may be, he's a player that can start and be productive on a winning team. They don't have a lot of those in Detroit. So to trade him away, I was a little surprised at that move by them. Um, for Minnesota, to me, it's a, it's a great move to pick him up. I mean – this guy's going to help that offense to me tremendously. Um, tight ends are a great mismatch, so I love that. Um, I love Robert Quinn. I thought that was a, for what they gave up to get a pass rusher. Who, yeah, this year has been sort of up and down, but he's the best pass rusher in Chicago, so he's the focus. Now he goes to Philly. He's one of many, and he's not going to play 60 snaps. He's going to probably play 30, 32 I love that. I think he's going to make a big impact there. And I understand the bear side of it. That makes a lot of sense um, because he's not going to be there long-term. So move on from that. The one that I know you and I are going to discuss a ton is I can't wait to see if Andy Reid can turn Kadarius Tony into a star because clearly to me for the giants to pull the plug so quickly, it must. And we talked about this way earlier when yes, he wasn't playing. I'm guessing Tony has not changed and done, bought in at all in New York. Because if he had bought in, even if he wasn't playing and he was hurt, if he had bought in, they would have not traded him yeah. because he's so talented. So the fact that he didn't buy in, to me, it's a little scary. Yes. There's no doubt. That makes you a little bit like, wait a second. How do you not – they're winning. Things are going good. But all that being said, Andy is one of the best coaches we've seen in the last 20 years. He has a long history of taking guys that maybe didn't fit exactly the way they were wanted to fit, if that's the right way to say it, by their previous team. And he got them and sort of manipulated his offense, that player, the whole thing, because the player was so gifted. And, I mean, they lost Tariq Hill. Now, I'm not saying this kid's as talented, but he's pretty freaking talented. Yeah. And if they can get even – 80% of what he was at Florida, they're going to get a dynamic impact game changer. So I love the risk. And truthfully, I understand the Giants too, because if he's not buying in and it's still going on, I think they're also showing everybody in the building, hey, it's okay we to are, be this way. Yeah, we are, we are not going to let players that don't buy in stick around. You either buy in and pull the rope in the same direction or we'll, we'll find somebody else who can, and you can go somewhere else. Yeah. So I think it's actually beneficial for both teams. The Giants, because they're saying they're drawing that line in the sand, they're saying we're winning, and we're winning because this is how we're doing it, because we're all rowing the boat in the same direction. This guy isn't, so we're, we're moving on. And I'm sure that locker room is like, okay, we get it. 
there's no double standard. It's you either buy in and do it the right way. It doesn't matter how great or how talented you are. You buy in or you're out. So I think in the Giants building, it went over great. And I think the Chiefs building's got to be like, hey, we don't care what happened before. We see the clips on film and we think this guy could be a superstar. Hey, well, let's roll the dice. We've had some strange ducks in here before. And if this turns out right, we are going to have somebody that we never, ever would have gotten in the first round in most years. Yeah. And it's a, you know, for for a lot of situations like this, it needs to be a win-win-win type of situation. And so the, certainly it's a win for the Giants just from the fact that they got them out of there, that they sent the message that they backed up their message that yes, we're going to exactly. have an open competition where we want players who are, are bought into what we're doing, like you said. And if you're not, we don't care what your draft capital was. We don't care what your free agent contract was. You're not going to be playing and you may not be here for long. And so that's great. That get, that keeps, that reinforces what Brian Dable's doing from day one. It's a win for Andy Reid because, like you said, they got him at a steal, and you saw what he did against the Cowboys last year. He was a dominant player on the field who could win one-on-one -on, -one on the outside. And it's a potential win for Tony if he gets his head out of his backside um, to, to the extent that a lot of young people sometimes do just because they're young and they, young they and don't dumb. have the perspective. Yeah. yeah. And we and were all there at one point. Exactly. We all were. And so Andy Reed might be able to look at him and go, listen, man, I've, I've had, I've had players who are as good as you. You could be every bit as good as Tyreek Hill in our offense here, just in a different way. You might not yep. have his speed, but what you can do in the open field, what you can do with releases and routes, you don't need his speed. You just need to do what you do. But what we need from you is this. And if you can do that, listen, the sky's the limit for you. You're playing with the greatest quarterback in the NFL right now, or arguably, you know, at yep. least on this side of the Mississippi. So you you look at it from that perspective, and if he, he can, it can get through to him, great. But the thing, too, the only thing that I, I think it's a win-win, but I'm not sure about the third win, and like you. And part of that yep. is – even on the field, I look at his movement skills, and he and I think we touched upon this before, is that he makes – I was always worried – my big worry about him scouting him was that he makes very wide-ranging movements away from his pads. So when you watch a receiver run routes and your feet get way out from your body and you see that they slip consistently or that their feet plant in awkward spots – even if they can execute that dynamic maneuver, are you know if they're falling down, which he did a lot early in in camp as a rookie, or you're getting soft tissue injuries repeatedly and you can't be available and you're not reliable, then even if you've bought in, but you haven't bought into the point of looking at your game and going, how how can I make my movements more efficient because I can't stay on the field. I'm in the tub like on a regular basis here. So that's the only, those are like the two minor concerns with him. But I yep. like, I like the deal because they didn't pay a ton to get him. No. And the other thing, and, and I probably should have mentioned before that makes it sort of unique is the, the, the giants are a team that's been losing and Brian is trying to set a culture and build a culture. Yeah. So they can't take a risk right now. They don't have that culture defined. The Chiefs have been winning for a while. They can take a roll of the dice. And it reminds me a little bit of the Patriots when they were winning. 
they could bring in the guys that everybody said, the Corey Dillons, the Randy Mosses, that quote unquote were headaches because they had a defined culture. This is how we do things. Here we've got leaders. No bad guy's going to come in and ruin our locker room. Now he may come in, not buy in, and we'll run him out of here, but he's not going to come in and affect our winning and losing in terms of screwing up the locker room. And I think that's where the Chiefs have an advantage, whereas the Giants can't risk it. What they're trying to do is get those foundational blocks built so that three years from now. You have the equity to be able to do that. Exactly. Yes. And, and and that's totally it. And I think so. So, yeah, that's not a bad trade. I I I also I like the Quinn trade because now you get a guy who can play in the two point in in, in and he's great as a two point rusher. He's yep. not so great with his hand in the dirt. So you you know in Chicago he had his hand in the dirt a little a lot more often. So this is going to be this will be a good fit for him. I mean we can't we can't go this episode without saying Christian McCaffrey. Wow, like you yeah. just you just marshal you just you kind of got this arrows Marshall Falk out of the Colts and into into a team that could make him like the Rams. And the fact that Kyle Shanahan said he's a force multiplier, and you see what he's doing to open up Kittle. The fact that trick plays, the best thing about trick plays is the personnel that creates the bind. Yep. You know, so when Christian McCaffrey throws a touchdown pass and you look at the, examine the play and you say, well, Brandon Ayuk's on one and, and George Kittle are on one side and all we're doing is throwing a wide route to Christian McCaffrey where he has the option to throw it. And if you're a DB and you see Kittle and and Ayuk setting up to stock block and McCaffrey's in the flat alone, you're trying to attack McCaffrey before he gets a big chunk of yards. Yep. On top of that, the guy that you're thinking is least likely to get the job done to block me is Ayuk. So yes. if Ayuk, I slip by Ayuk easily, I'm not, it doesn't register. Not if even I, a bit. If, I, if Kittle slips by me, I'm turning around as fast yeah, as exactly. I possibly can. Yeah. So the fact that, that, you know, those personnel elements make, make sense. And the fact that what I love about that trade too is that once they did that, that um, they reckon, you know, Mike McDaniels was smart enough to go, well, I've been on this team. They have a strong running back room for what I do. And Jeff Wilson Yep. I mean, listen, they drafted this Ty, they, um, Tyrone Davis Price. They drafted him. They got this Jordan Mason kid who they probably like enough. They kept him on the roster and traded Trey Sermon. So why don't I make a play for for Jeff Wilson, especially because I had to give up Chase Edmonds, our free agent, to get Bradley Chubb. And as a result, you probably got a net upgrade with the both of them, because you shored up your backup running back position with the player you know intimately, who exactly. you know is reliable, can catch the do everything you want him to do. He may not be quite as athletic as Edmonds, but he's a he's turned into a very good runner in that scheme. A little yep. more pop in terms of what he can do at the point of contact, and you get Bradley Chubb alongside a Emmanuel Ogba, yeah. um, and now you now you've got bookends. And, yep. and with that team that likes to blitz and now their blitz hasn't been working all that great as much as it has in the past. Um, so now they're, they're, they probably want to go, we want to, we want to blitz less. We want to rush with just our base package. And now they can do that. Oh yeah. No, it's, it, it's funny. Cause 
when you look at Miami, I mean, prior to the year, everybody was saying, oh, is Tua going to be good enough? And he may not be everybody's cup of tea in terms of his style, but he's pretty freaking efficient. Yes. Their offense scores points. You bring in, you mentioned Agba. How about the fact you have a veteran like Melvin Ingram down there? Yes. It's guys like that. You, you, all of a sudden, Ingram becomes a better player because instead of playing 45 or 50 snaps, he'll probably only be paying maybe 20, 25, yeah. rotating here and there. Chubble takes it. So, I mean, their defense got markedly better. It's always better when you have a player that you know fits the scheme. And they probably determined that they didn't think Edmonds was a great fit yeah. and said, all right, if we can move him and we got to move him as part of this deal to get Chubb, we can go get Wilson. So I love what they did. I think the, the, the McCaffrey thing is so interesting because for Carolina, it makes sense. By the time Carolina is going to be good, he's going to be near that age where you don't want him anyway. Yeah. So the fact they got so many picks, it sounds great. And I love what he can potentially do for the 49ers. He could, he could, he could literally save jobs because that offense has looked awful yes. before he got there. But the one thing I will say is history has shown when a running back has two straight years of missing most years, they rarely get back. Yeah. Now, that was a lot to give up for that. But I think there's also a little bit, a pinge of desperation in oh. Garoppolo's not a star. At this point, he's just sort of a getting-by guy. Lance got hurt, and even before he was hurt, we weren't sure for sure he's the guy yet. So this is our sort of stabilizing that if Lance ain't the guy and if Garoppolo's just a guy and this guy's healthy and a star, we can get by in this offense because he's so special. Yeah. So I get what they're doing and why they did it. So I think that works for both sides. The one I will say that I don't get at all is I don't get the Bears giving up potentially a high second-round pick for a receiver who I like him. I think he's a good receiver, but who's going to demand a ton of money on a team that is not right now very good. And I think they've done a lot of good things to this point to build for the future. I think some of their draft picks have been phenomenal. I think Justin Fields has actually made some strides this year. And yes, a receiver will help Justin a little bit, but I don't know if he's going to help him enough to give up a potentially top 40 pick because you very rarely do, in my opinion, do receivers make a quarterback dramatically better, whereas a good quarterback makes receivers dramatically better. And as Fields continues to get better, the Claypool will not be as valuable because they will have other receivers that he will be able to make good. So that one did not make sense to me. Yeah, I think I'd like to touch on three things with this. One is I love what you brought up about San Francisco because to me, the, when my first reaction to that trade was um, obviously when on the field, he's a great player. McCaffrey is a great player, and this is how they could use him, and it could be awesome. But you can't help but think that this also could be the straw that breaks the camel's back for John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan um, at the and that this trade could basically kill the 49ers for a long time. Um, if it doesn't work out and and that you could and the pressure now is on Kyle Shanahan to be the quote unquote offensive genius that he's regarded to be. And and it's and you wonder if they will all both the, the GM and the coach will be in lockstep if step if this team starts losing with a healthy McCaffrey and the offense isn't taking advantage of McCaffrey by at least the perception of people in the media and the public um 
and then does that become a split between those two? Um, and is the and and can McCaffrey and can Shanahan step up and make McCaff and use McCaffrey as that engine? So far, I mean, after after a couple games, especially this last game, we see that he's he's and I would think if you have the reputation that Shanahan does as an offensive mind like he has that he looks at this as this is the challenge I want. Are you kidding me? Like we no want doubt. all the good players that we can get. I'm going to, you're giving me a premium tool in my tool bag. I'm, I'm going to use it and I'm going to find multiple ways to use it. So I, I, I see the risk reward there. Um, going back to TJ Hawkinson, um, you know, Brock Wright has looked pretty good um, as a undrafted free agent. They have James Mitchell at UVA. I don't know what Mitchell's going to look like. I thought that he could be maybe emerge into a startable tight end in package sets, kind of like you look at Ross Dwelly or on the upside, Tyler Conklin, who I've always really liked. And you could say maybe he can evolve into something like that. Maybe the combo of Wright and Conklin, they feel like they can they can deal with that and know that they didn't have to pay $10 million, as, as someone mentioned to me, for for Hawkinson, but I was stunned that they traded to a division rival and that they stunned and on Hawkinson at that, because he, he, he was their one, a one B guy with Amon Ross St. Brown on that team. And he is an excellent, he's an excellent blocker. You, you know, he may not be Travis Kelsey as a receiving threat, but he's, he's maybe a notch below that at worst. I mean, and you've seen that he leads the league right now in yards after the catch. Um, he's had some big plays. And going to Minnesota where Irv Smith has underwhelmed. And there's got to be something going on with Irv Smith that it just hasn't clicked because he's a talented guy. But it this either helps Irv Smith, in a sense, because they can maybe run a little bit more two tight ends and go back to that. While I know O'Connell wanted to spread the field, as we talked about a few weeks ago with all these two high looks, maybe they also feel like we want to be able to run the ball to the advantage of that. And Smith is still on the lighter side and yep. Hawkinson can be that in inside guy. And while Johnny Munt is an admirable, um, you know, player, he's not TJ Hawkinson no. at the no. line of scrimmage or as a route runner. So you get more, you great, create more versatility for the Vikings, and it's great for their passing game and their run game, um, at least for the time being. And it gives them leverage to basically move on from Irv Smith if they need to. Um, and then finally, you know, Claypool. Um, he was never the player that I think people thought after the first six weeks that, yeah. you know, and you could see that just, I remember doing a, a video on him and going, well, this is how the Titans fold him in week seven. And all it really was, was that you could tell after the watching the first six weeks of games that cornerbacks didn't play him tight at the boundary. Cause they, they, there was a lot of like, he's a rookie. You could almost yeah. read into it that he's a rookie. He's not going to make that tight boundary catch. He's not going to go up and win this over me. And he did it enough times. And suddenly cornerbacks got the message. Like I've got to guard him to the point of risking interfering with him. And yep. then when I do that, then we're good. And cover and zone coverage defenses were consistently the first guys that the safety or linebacker came over to shut off the, the auxiliary part of their 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 coverage was 
Juju Smith-Schuster and Deontay Johnson. Like almost all the time it was those guys. By week seven, the first guy they reacted to was Claypool. And then Roethlisberger was like, I'm done. You know, there's not, I don't need to, to go there. But to to the the positive about Claypool, he is a he's a decent blocker. You've got to be a decent blocker to play with the Steelers. The Bears want to run the ball. They've got two decent running backs, I think two good running backs. And that, you know, he can help out in that aspect. We know that he's used to playing in the screen game and he's a big dude who can move, so that's good. He can help get behind the defense with that speed. And if you give him situations where he's just going to outrun the defense and Justin Fields is going to buy some time, he's a great asset there too. So you get two assets like that, not just Pettis getting lost in coverage, yep. not just that. And then that also opens things up for Equinemius St. Brown, who's more of a vertical intermediate vertical threat under 40 yards more often than not than he is a 40 plus guy so i see the help there but claypool's not a number one he's more of a kenny galladay edition a guy who who does better when he's cushioned by multiple players but may also and this this is a good question i want to ask you is you look at you there's receivers and i look at galladay and i think he got enabled okay and it wasn't really it Part of it is that young players, it's hard to have perspective when you're young with certain situations. So yep. when you enter the league and you're a star player to, at, in, in a smaller level of Division One, and then you come to the to the Detroit Lions, and while the teams have, have struggled over the years, during that time, they had one of the best slot receivers in the league in Golden Tate, who was rugged and could play outside and win contested balls. And then you had Marvin Jones, a consummate professional who could run a ton of routes. He could win, beat, he could kill you deep. He could kill you over the middle. Um, he can win after the catch. He may not be an all-pro player, but he's one of those guys that you could probably pick every facet of his game and say he's above average yeah, at exactly. everything. Yep. And so you've got those two guys on the outside, and now you could put Galladay, who's tall and fast and leaps, against linebackers and safeties. And yes, he's going to have top 10 production with Matthew Stafford and those two those two yep. other guys buffering him. I'd have to think that it's easy for a young guy to then get paid a big free agent contract by the Giants and go, I'm the man. Yeah, I've I'm, made it. I've made it. And I've yep. and I've proven that I'm the production guy. You know, my production speaks for itself. My contract tells me that I deserve to be on the field. And then when it comes time to being, you know, hey, you got to get better at this. Hey, we need you to do that. Now you're like maybe more prone to saying, I don't understand. Like, yeah. I don't get it. And and like you can feel for the guy on that end. So when I look at Claypool, I fear that he could wind up in this situation where it's like, listen, I've had early success. The offense changed. Ben's arm got got. You know, yep. he got old and, and we didn't have good protection and they couldn't throw down field and they couldn't do these things. You let me play my game and I'll be the star again that I was showing early on in my career as opposed to, you know, your routes can be better. Your hand positions can be better. You know, how you... It's going to be a big challenge yeah. for him. Yes. Because he's going to have to step up now because he is the guy in yeah. terms of... The, yes, they have Mooney who is dynamic and explosive, but you don't go get a guy with a, a, a high second-round pick and say you're just going to be a contributing player. They want him to be red zone guy, 
big receiver, clutch guy over the middle. They want all those things wrapped up into one. So he's going to have to step up and be more consistent. And part of that, hey, he may, he may be right in his belief that, hey, the offense has struggled there in Pittsburgh the past few years and it hasn't given him a chance to shine. Well, here's your chance. Can you be the go-to guy for a young quarterback that's developing? I'm, I hope he does because I will say as a kid, this kid's a good kid. Yeah. And, 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 and you want to see him succeed. Um, and, and I think there's a great opportunity for him, Chicago. I just, I'm, I just am a little surprised after all the great things that this new regime has done in terms of drafting, finding really good value in free agency and not going crazy. They've really built, to me, a strong foundation in a very short period of time. This one just surprised me a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I agree. And so... Um... I will add the one thing you you mentioned just because we were talking McCaffrey, you think the pressure is on Shanahan or Lynch? How about the 49ers? You think that trainer, the guy who's getting these guys rehab, how do you think he's got McCaffrey and Lance? If those guys, if McCaffrey doesn't stay healthy and Lance doesn't get back to 100, percent that guy may as well just go put his office in a suitcase and head on out. The pressure on that poor son of a gun has got to be brutal. I, all I know is that, you know, he if he gets canned, he may he may go on to like invent some sort of like duct tape that works to be yeah, able to like to, to and becomes you know and he goes well how did you become a multi billionaire well I got canned from the 49ers because I couldn't keep this guy's ankle you know exactly, you know, right? you know and I, I and it just bothered me for for nights i had sleepless nights and it just came to me you know i can just <laughs> see that story but uh but let's end this with a young quarterback in a situation that no one really expected to the level that it came which is sam ellinger getting the start and matt ryan getting benched and then after ellinger um having i would call it a d a good week i watched him he had a good game and if it wasn't for michael pittman dropping an a deep over route um, to after putting them in position to win, and then T- Taylor Heineke driving driving down the field and them getting the lead, they might have won that game. I mean, they were really a Michael Pittman drop away because if he caught that ball, they were he would have gotten they would have been past midfield, and it was would have been very likely that they would have been in field goal range to win it. So after that, though. Mar- is Marcus Brady, I think Marcus it was Marcus Brady. Brady. Yeah. Marcus Brady gets fired. So what do you think happened there that got Brady fired? Well, you know, firstly, it, to me it was, I shouldn't say strange. Um, I think clearly as an organization, they determined through the first half season that Matt Ryan does not, in their eyes, have it anymore to be the guy next year or the year after. I think when they brought him over, they hoped, they might squeeze three or four years of good production and build the team around him and do that. But I think they realized, all right, he ain't the guy. And we're getting close to the point where we don't want to risk him getting hurt. So what's going to help us more? Let's let him be a backup. Let's get Sam in there. And let's see what we got. Because I think when they took him, I think they liked a lot of things about him. I think you and I talked about it. He did a lot of things really well. Yes, His film in college, there was a lot of times where you thought, all right, this could be a high pick. And there were some other times, eh, maybe not as much. Right. But there's some things there you like. So I think they're thinking, hey, let's get him half a season to play. We can try to make a decision about him. 
And if it just so happens that it also means we lose a few more games and get a higher pick, well, that's not so bad either. Um, but I will say that the thing that with Marcus Brady that to me, and this is what I'm very confused at, is everything you read coming out is that Coach Reich and Chris Ballard, who are two of the best people in the business, that they're secure for two, three, five years. Like it, there's nothing changing there. Like the owner came out and said, these are my guys and things are going in the right direction. We like them. And then all of a sudden for Brady, who isn't calling the plays, to get fired when Sam played pretty well, in my opinion. It wasn't a Hall of Fame performance, but it's a first career start. Um, I just, I don't get it. There's got to, and, and in truth, I've been trying to find out, talking to people around the league, you just get a feel. The consensus is all, I, I should say, there is no consensus. It's all over the place. Some people say that they think there's some, there's some genuine concern in the building that the owner may not be as patient as people think, and that this may be their way of telling the owner, well, here was the problem. But it just seems to me the owner, I mean, he's been an owner in this league for a long time. I think he understands that the guy who isn't calling the plays, it's not that he doesn't influence the team, but you're telling me that's the reason your offense is bad? I don't know. It just It's a very strange thing. And, and I will say I've never, I think I may have met Marcus once, but I know a lot of the people in the CFL know Marcus because he was up there as a player and as a coach. There may not be a better human being in the world, and he's so well regarded as a coach and as a teacher. It just something seems odd about this whole situation. I've not been able to find out what it is to why he's not there. I don't get it. I'm very confused by it. I don't understand it. I'm sure at some point the truth will come out or Jay Glazer will get it out there. But I'm not sure. It's a very, to me, it's a very strange situation. Yeah, and I think that's worthwhile for us just to say we don't know at this point because that's that's nutty. You know, for me, just on the field, you know, when I first heard that they were going with Ellinger, my, my thought was, okay, everything you said about we can get a higher round draft pick, Matt Ryan doesn't look like it's it for us. And I took it even from a Matt Ryan apologist sort of view where I looked, took it and thought, okay, our line, we're missing Glowinski. He's gone. Fisher's gone. So our line isn't what it was. Matt Ryan needs pass protection. And yep. I've noted, and I remember this when Shanahan was in Atlanta and they went to the Super Bowl that year. That preseason, we talked about it here. It was awful. Like there were points in the preseason that Ryan literally was just throwing the ball just throwing ball, ball in the knees and just looking at the team, looking at the <laughs> sideline. Like I'm, if this is what I'm getting, I'm giving up because yeah, exactly right. And, and Matt Ryan has always been a tough and good oh, yeah. player. Like, so, you know, when that happened, I was saying, this is going to be an abysmal year. And you remarked that you had never seen an offensive line get rebuilt that late in the preseason and have success in the manner that they did. And they went on to go to the Super Bowl and, you know, and it goes on from there. But when you look at Ryan as the years went on, in the past couple of years watching him, you know, he still was, you know, gritty in what he had to do. But, you know, once pressure really started to get to him, he knew his limitations and he just kind of, you know, there were more plays he was more apt to give up on because he knew he couldn't do, extend them. 
He couldn't yep. do what he had to do. And I think that in in Indianapolis, that was happening to him. And on top of that, he's got Alec Pierce, a talented rookie, but a rookie. He's got um, Campbell, who Paris Campbell, who might as well be a rookie because this yeah, is his first exactly. full season that he's healthy thus far. Um, and I watched that Titans game. And this was this was the game that he he ended up getting benched the, the the next day. Matt Ryan threw two picks in that game. One was a great read by David Long, the linebacker, who basically had two had like basically two responsibilities, and he went in one direction and then came back immediately to take away the other in a way that that was a really a, a better play by Long than a bad play by Ryan. Still a bad play by Ryan, but. You know, you look at the nuance and you go, that was a good play by Long more than it was a bad one by Ryan. The second one was a pick six. And the pick six was a side adjustment because Bud Dupree's on the edge. They clearly aren't going to block him. He's on the front side. Paris Campbell's on that same side, tight to the formation. Paris Campbell was expected to run a stop route. You could just look at it and go, this is supposed to be a side adjustment stop route. Paris Campbell runs an out and up. Matt Ryan oh. throws the stop route and it's over. Oh. By the time Paris Campbell turns around, the defender who cuts off that pass already had the ball and is already 10 yards away from him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think what happens here is that the Colts probably also looked, I'd have to think they looked at this and said, all right, it, it's, it, they probably, the first thought was we're going to have to bench Matt Ryan. Okay, well, we're going to use Foles, right? No, maybe we don't use Foles because for the reasons you said, Sam Ellinger showed some promise. But part of it too was our receivers are young and Matt Ryan and Nick Foles are going to demand side adjustments. They're going to want a lot more freedom to like make changes and alterations based on the coverage and they're going to expect that to happen. And these guys may just not be equipped enough yet to do that. But we've got Campbell, We've got Naeem Hines, and we've got these guys that we can go stretch the field horizontally with the perimeter rush game, and and Ellinger can run. Like, he's not, you know, he's not, you know, Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts, Chad Kelly, you know, any of these guys who have that kind of speed. Um, but he is a rugged player who with good pocket presence. And that was one of the things that he did well. So you knew he could hold up in the pocket and there were multiple backside pressures in this game against Washington that he just did a great job of climbing the pocket and finding his open man. Multiple times that you're looking at the that edge pressure and you're going, I don't think Matt Ryan would have made that at this stage of his career. On top of that, they implemented more of a, ru uh, a rushing attack where they schemed things where they had Campbell on these flies jet sweeps or or motioning across and then there were multiple mesh points between him Taylor and was whether he was going to keep it and have that option game and I think that that his presence forces that 11th defender to play the quarterback as opposed a little to, bit more yep. yeah no doubt no doubt and yep. so then they're like, we can involve Campbell more in this aspect of the game. We can involve Naeem Hines a little bit more. We use our speed to stretch the field horizontally. And then the, the bonus that you hoped for when I did his scouting report was at Texas, his his vertical game was awful for the first couple of years. And then the final year, I saw as many drops 
of vertical passes that were pinpoint from Ellinger as I saw like Lamar Jackson getting dropped, his receivers dropping passes at Louisville in his final year. And I thought his vertical game was improving. And sure enough, there were two impact plays in that game. One where he hit a 45-yarder to, to Pierce um, in stride on a deep post after climbing the pocket from backside pressure. And then the second one was an interference call um, that was drawn on Campbell up the opposite sideline. Perfect throw. Campbell literally was having his arm pulled and he got like his fingertips, the other fingertips on the ball. So you look at that and I could see the idea of them saying, we, we help Jonathan Taylor. We simplify the game plan for everybody else. We give Ellinger an extended audition like they gave Mills exactly. Finley, and Jalen Hurts. And two out of the three have worked out in the past couple of years. And we're good. But what I don't get, like you, is did, did Marcus Brady just say, I don't think this is going to work. And, I'm, and I don't see how a guy who's been a veteran in two formats would say, I don't think this is going to work. And I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. I don't think that's, that's yeah, even that, remotely possible. No, no yeah. there, there's something else going on. It just yeah. it seems so strange to me based on everything I know about the coaches there, about Chris Ballard and, and the way he runs things and, and the quality people that he and Frank are and, and everything I've heard about Marcus just being the best person and a hell of a coach. There's something weird. Does going it, on does it lead back to the the only thing i could think of is this and i'll run this by you is does it lead back to the idea that that at the end of the day jim mercy's comfort with the uh with this whole situation was probably rooted in the idea that that they were that he was sold that matt ryan was going to be the stabilizing force that philip rivers wasn't and when when that offensive and that they gave up, they let Glowinski and Fisher walk. And so, and that was one of the best offensive lines in the league. And they are not no. a good offensive are, line right sure. now. And so I would have to think that what might've happened there is Ursay looks at that and goes, well, I got sold. We were going to be good with Matt Ryan. Now we're not. And if I look at this, I look at this, the decision here was we got Matt Ryan who needs a pocket and we let the guys go who could give him a pocket. What were you guys thinking? And yes. that's where I think maybe Ursa from his point of view comes and that's where they're like, well, we got to figure something out to buy time here because we're obviously going to be drafting offensive linemen and a quarterback <laughs> and, or in yep. free agency in this draft. So it, it just makes me wonder if there's a little more um, doubt or whatever of the owner of the coach in the front office. Like in his eyes, what he's publicly saying is all is good. But is he really behind the scenes saying this is all good? Or is he going into the offices saying this is the third year we've gone and gotten a veteran quarterback? I don't know what's going on. But we, this has got to end, da da da, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, we yes. might be out of jobs. Yes, we we and it just, I don't know. It to me, it just it was a very strange thing, and it was so much stranger just because I've known Chris for a million years. He's as good a person as there is in the world, and very good at his job. 
everybody that I know that's ever worked with Coach Reich loves the guy, says phenomenal things. And everybody I know that's worked with Coach Brady says amazing person, great at his job. That's where I can't figure out how this ended up where it ended up. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, one thing is, is that we can always kind of figure out how this all ended the way it did. And, you know, and this is a, you know, was another great conversation. I, I look forward to these so much. Um, and as do I, and so do our, so do our listeners. So that's good. You know, we appreciate you guys. Um, you can, you can find Russ Landy at Russ Landy on Twitter. You can find me at Matt Waldman on Twitter. You, of course, the, my YouTube channel is Matt Waldman's RSP film room so that you can, you know, find a lot of video analysis on there of college prospects, which we'll, we'll get around to. Oh yeah. We'll get into those. No doubt. I've got, you know, for the rookie scouting portfolio, I've got about, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching about. 60 players evaluated thus far it'll start to ramp up even more by by around uh you know thanksgiving a little after thanksgiving um i'll probably be at about 70 or 80 by the end of the month and then we'll be we're going from there and of course if you like tiktok some people like tiktok i have a tiktok account where i'm doing a lot more nfl stuff on that along with twitter you can find that at matt waldman rsp on TikTok, um, I don't dance, so there, there you go. Um, <laughs> so they get a little the, saving grace. Yeah, you get some saving grace. The last time I did dancing, I was in a Latin orchestra in uh, in Miami, um, and, that's, <laughs> and I'm saving, and I'm glad there's no video for that. So, <laughs> and I'm sure you are too. So on that note, thanks again. You guys have a great week.